Welcome to episode number six. Today I have a special guest, Dr. Yan Jolie. He's a lawyer by training who developed a keen interest in genomics, and now he's at the forefront of health law and bioethics research. In today's conversation, we mainly talk about his contributions and experiences going through this field, and also his vision for the future. We had a great and value-packed conversation, so make sure to check it out, and let's dive right in. You're a lawyer and a legal scholar, but now you're teaching at McGill's Department of Human Genetics. So how did that happen? Uh, it, it happens by accident more than, than anything else, happy circumstances. Uh, I think that I, I found out I had a very good uh, affinity with law, good skill set. Uh, and so I, I like problem solving and, and the fact that law uh, taught you, in a way, a methodology on, on how to solve many important problems in life. I didn't like so much the, you know, knowing some uh, sections of various law by heart. That was much less my thing. But the problem solving, I was definitely attracted to. But beyond law, I was interested in also many other scientific fields, especially cutting edge science. So I had an opportunity to do an internship uh, at the end of my legal training at the center uh, that was interested in the looking at the ethical and uh, policy issues uh, of genetic research. And I, I did my stash there, ended up really loving it, and, and never looked back since then. Uh, and, and so a lot of the notion in genetics, I just learned, you know, on the job. Uh, I had no formal schooling in genetics in a way, but I've been in the field for over 25 years now. So uh, acquired some basic, you could say. So one of the courses that you're teaching is EdGen 660, which is on genetics, bioethics, and policy. Um, what, what can students expect to learn in this course? Uh, they will learn to, I think that the, the most important thing they will retain from that class is how to have a broader perspective on the work uh, that they do in genetics. Whatever their area of specialization in genetics, and we live in a life where, especially at the university graduate level, we are quite specialized in our little area. And, and sometimes we have a very specific research question in front of us. And it's very easy to lose sight of the larger reality within which we work. Uh, so how does the genetic community function as a whole? How does it contribute to better health for people? What are some of the challenges of the risk uh, inherent to research in that in that field? What are some of the obstacles that make it so complicated to translate, you know, interesting research finding into actionable uh, drugs, tests, treatment? All these sort of big questions that, you know, in a way will tell you much more about, about what you are doing in the lab. Uh, these are the questions we're going to be looking at within the class, and we'll be looking at these questions 
uh, from a variety of perspectives. So uh, the class that's going to be in attendance comes from uh, multiple different fields. I like it that way. You will have a lot of people, of course, specialize in genetics or in biotechnology, but you'll also have people that are cognizant of law or bioethics. And very often we will work through case studies, scenarios in interdisciplinary little group to try and find solutions. Uh, so it's also going to uh, get the students involved in sort of large scale genetic research and genomic research and what it means. Uh, it means that you're not just in your little group of, of one or two geneticists sequencing something. It means that you're working with people with different discipline, with different part of a task to reach a, a common objective. Uh, so these are some of the, of the things that, that you'll see through the class. And also I like to keep the topic changed to make sure it's always uh, updated and responding to some of the latest uh, interesting research in genomics. So you mentioned that they're all from different backgrounds. Um, what are uh, the challenges of working in such an interdisciplinary environment? Uh, you know, we a lot can get lost in translation. Uh, there's there's a lot of skill sets to acquire if you want to work well in multidisciplinarity. You have to listen to others. You have to value the the, the input that other people can bring to the table, even if they're from different discipline. Uh, there, there are sometimes several sides to a coin, to a coin, and and so you you cannot think that you present the only valuable perspective to a question, and so it's it it really is more than just working in a group. It's also an understanding uh, of different discipline and and of different culture contributing uh, to the discussion and adding their own elements uh, to the table. And finding your your place within that. Um, before I ask my next question, can you introduce us to the Center of Genomics and Policy, or CGP for short, and explain what you guys do there? Sure, absolutely. So uh, the Center of Genomics and Policy, which I now direct, uh, is located within uh, the Institute for Genomics Medicine, what's going to be a new institute created uh, in what was formerly known as the Genome Center on Dr. Penfield. And uh, the kind of work that we do is, is very much interested in the ethical and policy aspect of uh, genomics, but really in, a, in its broadest spectrum, going from things like gene editing uh, to genomics as a data science and how it conflicts with AI, and, and what are the, the challenges there, to even sometimes questions of, of One Health, ecogenomics, et cetera. So very broad vision on all the larger questions that, that are confronting genomics and biotechnology. And it's a center with a long history. Uh, it was uh, first uh, created by Barta Maria Knoppers at the University of Montreal in the mid-1990s. Uh, it was at the law faculty at that time, and, and Barton Knoppers really created the field. She was one of the first scholars to, to have that kind of a vision uh, of genetics and also look at it in a way as, you know, the lawyer and the bioethicist not being there to stop the science or, or to pause new 
hurdles or roadblock, but really how can we contribute to this research, make it work better, make it be more fruitful. Uh, and so it, it was a very different approach at the time. Uh, eventually it proved to be too different, too groundbreaking from a law for a law faculty. And that's why we moved at the Department of Human Genetics at McGill uh, in around 2009. Uh, and, and there has been a really good match. Uh, we've been working very closely with scientific colleagues uh, at the Department of Genetics within the Genome Center, uh, and, and now have a lot of projects in, in common uh, that, that we're still developing and will be contributing to a lot of those big grants uh, that we're doing at the level of the Institute and at the level of the Faculty of Medicine, uh, also helping at the MUHC uh, with some of the electronic records and, and how we can uh, promote better access to those records. Yeah. Um, you briefly mentioned that you're now the new director for the center, CGP. So I have to ask, what role do you envision for the center moving forward? I think we don't want to completely change uh, things. I think, as I mentioned, center has a long history and, and we have some proven strength. Uh, one of those strengths that we're really well known for are, are international competitive study uh, in the field of genomics. So, you know, when, when you are uh, on a cutting edge field like this, a lot of time new inventions are going to come about and, and they've never been looked at by policymakers and policymakers don't really know what to do with those inventions, what kind of governance framework is needed. Just to give you a really obvious example, uh, when uh, we started discussing about human germline editing, this is a huge scientific uh, possibility to be able to change, uh, modify the genome of, of, a, uh, of a, a baby in a, of an embryo in the germline. Uh, and, and it can have repercussion not only on the future child, but on uh, the whole family lineage. Uh, and so it is not something that, that you can do lightly. Uh, you have to think about it very carefully. Should we be doing this at all? If yes, what are the types of control and, and check and balances that we must implement to make sure that this is safe uh, and, and is not going to create uh, more harm than anything else, is not going to completely change the way we function as a society? Uh, of course, if you, if you approach a traditional uh, you know, minister, government representative, uh, the people that, that a senator, that you know, the people that usually uh, will develop new laws, uh, they have no idea. They don't know how this is done. So what, what you usually do is you do international, is, is, you know, they would approach us. We do international comparative research, look at, well, you know, we haven't yet thought about this question in Canada. What about the United Kingdom or the U.S.? Have they already approached this? What kind of solution did they develop? And, and, and this is our strength because over the years, we've built a unique network of collaborators that can help us understand uh, the approach in so many countries. Uh, and so that's definitely something we're keeping, but we're also broadening our horizon, both in terms of methodology. Uh, as I said, it's now an interdisciplinary environment at the center. So we have people with degrees in sociologies, uh, with degrees in bioethics, uh, 
uh, with degrees in genomics, genetics. And so they bring their own knowledge with them. Uh, we do interview studies, we do survey, we do data mining. Uh, so lots of new methodology to basically enrich our research and, and make it uh, that much more interesting. And also always interested in looking at the latest emerging scientific development and research questions. So also new topic. Of course, AI is playing a big role right now uh, because genomic is such a heavy data science that uh, the, the new rules that we're going to have uh, that are going to govern uh, the use of AI on those data sets are going to be extremely important and, and the principles we're going to adopt to make sure that this doesn't get out of, of control. So how do you make sure that you don't end up killing the innovation with regulation? Like, how do you define the balance? Uh, I think I think you know there there are several principles that that are at play there. Uh, of course, uh, a lot of us are are familiar with the precautionary principle, but I think that another principle that lawmakers should have in mind more often uh, is the principle of humility, and it's about really recognizing our own limitation. First of all, as as people that don't necessarily uh, understand the science to uh, its full advantage. And, and there is always, you know, this tendency of wanting to legislate when you're a lawyer and wanting to adopt laws for everything. Uh, what I've learned in, in my own humble experience uh, with genomics is that many times this is actually the last thing that you want to do. Because law is a very cumbersome instrument. It's very static. It takes time to adopt the law and it takes time to change the law. So if you do it, you really have to be sure that that this is the right thing, that the right object that you want to legislate on, and that your law is drafted in the best way that it can be. There are so many other things that you can do instead of legislating. So it's a bit of a last recourse when you're certain that something extremely important and, and, and likely risky is developing and you really want to stop it. Uh, but other than that, or, or where you know what the phenomenon is and you want to authorize it, but you want to regulate it and you know it well enough that, that you're confident you'll be able to come up with the right regulation. Otherwise, there are plenty of other tools, as I was saying, such as standard of practice, guidelines, et cetera, uh, you know, ethical recommendation, uh, consensus building. Uh, within groups, social sanction, et cetera. All these things can work very well as instrument of, of control. Uh, and, and they're much more uh, supple. They react much faster than the law. Uh, if, if you need to change your mind or to respond to a new development. So this is usually what you should start looking for first when you, when you meet an ethical issue is, is this something that, that we can approach through good practices? And when those practices are solidified enough, when you've actually tried and used them many times and you're confident that yes, indeed, they're the best way to deal with that situation, then maybe you ought to consider make these practice into a hard law. But, but like I said, this should really be an instrument of, of, of last resort and and you want to make sure that you get it right if you if you do it. Yeah, I agree. 
Um, how do you specifically deal with AI? Uh, oof. I, I think that's a, that's a that's a huge question in a way. I mean, I wish I had all the element of response that would make me uh, uh, somebody that everybody would like to talk to these days. Uh, I think a lot of these things, it's still a developing question, right? And I think that that you should, first of all, attack the, the problem from the angle of this is a work in process. What do we know now? What are some of the safeguards? What are some of the issues that we that we know about now? Again, I would definitely also, there's some really good instrument and guidelines that are already have been developed. Most of it outside the field of genomics. Uh, the Declaration of Montreal actually is a great example of an ethical declaration that's been adopted uh, under the uh, I would say under the guidance of the University of Montreal and some of the researcher there, but really it's an international document now. Uh, it it really introduces some very useful principles uh, to to uh, you know understand AI and to identify the challenge. And so some of these uh, documents, some of these instruments that have been developed already. Uh, we should not be afraid to use them, to start using them, not to start from nothing just because this is genomics. Uh, we know some principles are going to be very important when, when dealing with AI. Uh, one of these principles, for example, would be transparency. You want to know what is, you know, the, what, what was used to train uh, the AI application, uh, you know, what goes in, what goes out. What happens in between as much as possible? Uh, all these are going to be very important question. Uh, the question of diversity in, in data set is really big. You want to make sure that uh, you're not repeating bias that are already existing within society because the data that you fed uh, to your system was biased in itself. So uh, we know that we now need to pay attention to that, especially uh, in genomic uh, research. So there are some already things that, that we're quite aware of. What we're not so much aware of is probably the more downstream application of, okay, we think we've you know, managed to, to put the, the right data in the machine. We think it's been trained well, but how does the application actually work? Where do we want to basically say, well, the application could probably do this, but do we really want to, as a society, let a machine does this instead of a human operator? So what are the respective role of the machine and its human and, and the human operator or the human oversight? I think this is an example of a question that we're still learning a lot about uh, and, and have to continue doing research on. Uh, so as, as you see, it's really... Uh, a matter of, of still learning. Uh, there are things that are already raising red flags, things that we are already starting to know how to address, but still a lot of uncertainty downstream. So I think there's still a lot of research to be done in, in this field. For sure. Um, you're also the scientific director of the Genetic Discrimination Observatory. Can you also talk about that a little bit, please? Sure. So one of the questions that I, I looked at in, in genetic, since I actually arrived at, at the Center for Genomics and Policy, it's been a longstanding interest, is the way that, that genetics can be used 
not just for therapeutic purposes, but also how it can affect the perception that people have of one another, how it can be used outside the medical or within the medical context to put people into category and, and to do this uh, classification in a way that's going to have a negative sometime impact on people. And how can we prevent that? Uh, and uh, the genetic discrimination observatory is, is really the result of years of research where one of the conclusion was actually the problem of genetic discrimination is something that is extremely difficult to address thinking solely in terms of let's adopt the national law. Uh, because genetic information circulates, it doesn't stay within one province, within one country. Uh, medical research now is international and, and, and big companies such as insurance group, et cetera, uh, often have a representative in many different countries. The law sometimes will allow them to circulate the information from one country to another. So if you really just think about the problem with national law, you're going to lose a lot of the real issue and, and not be able to address them. And that's not even counting that discrimination is such an insidious phenomenon that it's, it's very easy for someone to discriminate against you uh, without telling you and never to admit to having done it. And, and then, you know, try apprehending that through the law. So basically, I thought something more is, is really necessary uh, in order to address this problem. And I said, well, you know, we're, we're specialists at doing international research here. Why not put all our heads together, try to do, uh, first of all, document how big a problem is genetic discrimination? Is it just a fruit of the imagination and, and really a marginal issue? Or, or is this actually a widespread problem? And, and how can we best address it if we discuss, you know, with each other, are the experience sufficiently comparable? Uh, can we try to develop some sort of a, you know, pan-national approach where several countries would sort of follow similar guidelines or way to prevent or, or to address this? So these were all the thoughts going through my mind as, as this developed. And, and the community has responded very well, demonstrating that, yes, this was really important to them. And now we're uh, uh, present in over 26 countries. Uh, it's it's gotten huge. Uh, I'm, I'm actually looking uh, to the future and thinking about already uh, passing the baton to uh, another director eventually uh, to take over for me because it's a, a huge responsibility. Uh, but, but right now really doing some super interesting research uh, in the field of genetic discrimination, uh, documenting, for example, what insurance companies are doing with genetic information in Canada and in other countries, uh, looking at the different laws and, and what they capture or don't capture in terms of preventing discrimination, uh, et cetera. You have been involved in promoting data governance and data sharing for some of the largest database projects and organizations. Um, before I ask my main question, just for my own curiosity, how do data governance and data sharing compare? Like what's the difference? What's the similarity? Sure. Uh, data governance is a bit broader a notion than, than data sharing. Data governance is really about what are the technical norms and uh, the policy norms 
that applies to your data to make sure uh, that you're making the best use of it and, 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 and using it in a way that is also uh, authorized uh, by law and, and meets the ethical guidelines and the good procedures. Uh, while, while on the other end, data sharing really focuses on the, the recent open science uh, phenomenon and the fact that we as a society, and when I say we as a society, I should be talking about a society that is almost a global society. Uh, I figured out that, especially in genomic research, uh, sharing was the way forward, especially for publicly funded research that there was no reason to keep the data in, but that there was so much to gain uh, in, in collaborating and, and sharing that data openly. So it's about what are the rules to do this in a manner that is responsible and respectful of, of research participants. Yeah, I think one great example of this could be COVID. Um, were you also involved in that? Yes, I was heavily involved in, in that. So I was part uh, of a project called CancoGen, uh, that was actually uh, funded by, by Genome Canada, among other organizations. And uh, the idea of that, of that project, and uh, it was really, uh, we're in a pandemic. We need to make sure that public health laboratories uh, have all the knowledge, the capacity that, that they need in order to uh, sequence, to obtain the sequence of as many, you know, uh, viral genome uh, from patient, and also we wanted to have uh, genetic tests from patient that have had COVID. So we had both genetic information on the virus and on the host uh, in order to do research, to advance as quickly as possible nationally and to help the international community. And, and my role in that project was to make sure that the data uh, was uh, being shared both the, the, the host and the viral data. Uh, I was the chair, the, the chair of the data sharing committee. So making sure the data was flowing uh, and that it was in the case of the viral genome, because the viral genome, of course, it doesn't raise so many privacy issues that we could share it on international open repositories. Uh, and so a lot of this have to do with, with talking with uh, the various public health, the various provincial public health offices uh, and, and the federal uh, also National Microbiology Lab trying to get the data sharing process more streamlined, functioning better so that we could deposit for faster and, and help the international community do the research. Yeah. And um, what have you learned from these experiences that maybe you can share with uh, other researchers who are developing database projects? I think, first of all, that, that you need to think about these issues of data governance, data sharing, uh, ethics approval. Think about it as early in the process as possible. The earlier you think about it, you know, ideally at the same time as you think about the scientific use of the database, the technical uh, function of the database, you should also think about the governance policies. Because the longer you wait, the more complicated it is going to be to adopt policies and to do the things that you want to do with your database. 
and, and the second advice is, is we are living in a day and time of data sharing. So if your research is publicly funded, know that this is going to be something you're going to have to do. You will not be able to avoid it, to keep the data just for yourself. It just is not possible anymore. Uh, as I said, we realized as a community that there was value in sharing genetic data. And given that research is a publicly you know, funded, if you're an academic researcher, there are expectations on the other side that you know, you're receiving this funding and, and you are expected to deposit your data rapidly in a public repository. And so you need to think about what this means for your research, what this means for your data, uh, what kind of rules you will be adopting to make sure that you can still do your research, that your students are still able to publish first on their data set and et cetera. So there's a lot of complicated things to conciliate, you know, how do you protect the data, but at the same time share it? So it's these kinds of things that, that need to be taught out from the onset of the project. So speaking of data sharing, how close are we in Quebec to achieve what is known as a learning healthcare system? So learning healthcare system is really a system where uh, you really can get the data directly from the patient. Every patient is, is in a way a potential subject of experiment. You can get the data from them, but you're also expected as part of the deal to be able to research with this data, to gather as much data as possible, maybe using AI or machine learning to get results faster and to return these results to uh, the clinicians so that patient can benefit faster from the research. That's the idea uh, behind you know, the learning healthcare system. It's also being able to use this data much easier, much more easily uh, to train, uh, to benchmark practices, et cetera. And how much closer are we? I would say we're definitely closer. In the last two years, I would say a light switch turned on uh, in, in, in the Quebec government somewhere in an office, and, and it was about time. And now there's been a lot of reform in, in uh, data privacy laws in Quebec. There are still more reform coming, and these reforms are going to make it easier to use the data, uh, hospital data from patient uh, for research and for benchmarking exercise, especially when the data stays between uh, within one hospital. But even if you're gonna share it with uh, other uh, researcher from Quebec in another uh, public hospital. So th these are good news. We're definitely not there yet. I mean, uh, there are still a lot of differences between, for example, if you're a university hospital or if you're, uh, you know, a, a local small size family clinic, uh, it's not, you know, things are not moving at the same pace. Uh, and, and, and that is a bit of a problem. We have to make sure that there's not a discrimination between who can benefit from these learning healthcare system between big city and university hospitals and people that are living uh, in remote area outside of cities, et cetera. We really have to uh, move at the same pace or almost everywhere. And that's the challenge in a huge country like Canada and, and a large province like Quebec. Yeah, thank you so much. 
I have one last question. So here at McGill, Faculty of Medicine has received large funds for research in DNA to RNA therapeutics. Will you be involved in this program as well? Uh, you can count on it. I mean, definitely. We 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 participated heavily in in writing up this application. Uh, it's the largest sum of money that that has been brought to the Faculty of Medicine. So it's really an excellent news for everyone at the Faculty of Medicine. Uh, RNA science is really revolutionizing uh, the way that we develop therapeutic and precision medicine. Uh, it comes with its own issues, though. Uh, issues that that go uh, both from you know sometimes the risk linked to new innovation, but also to the perception of risk. Uh, just to think back in the pandemic time and COVID, at how difficult it was to convince some members of our society to accept these new RNA vaccines. So I think that that we have uh, there's there's amazing opportunities coming with this huge grant, but there's a lot of responsibility on our part to deliver, and and we definitely have a lot to offer in in being part of that solution in the center of genomics and policy. So I think we'll we'll definitely be playing a big role here. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, any last words? Uh, no, it was a pleasure to talk, Mike. Thanks again for the opportunity. All right, I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please leave us a great review on your favorite podcasting platform, and I'll see you again next time.